It will arise as once before, in ages past when magic soared. Passing o'er the world, shore to shore, the wind, the fury, again shall roar. Welcome to the Swan Song Podcast by Eamon Cottrell and Brian Stallings. The Swan Song Podcast is the episodic audiobook for the fantasy novel John Swan Song and the Parada Isle. Episode 15. It was two long, dark, sad days before the jasmine moved from between the fateful pylons that would forever mark Rat's demise. John did not speak a word to anyone while they continued to stay harbored there. The crew became restless and more frightened the longer that they stayed in one place. They complained to Abram that Phineas's witchcraft would be the undoing of them all, that it was merely a matter of time before they were overtaken by Sparrows. Abram's reassurances that Phineas had already saved them once and knew what he was doing did little to dispel the bitterness that was overtaking the ship. Meanwhile, Phineas was locked in his cabin. He hadn't come out since Rat had fallen, as far as John could tell. And John was glad, too. He didn't want to see him. He didn't want to face him almost as much as he didn't want to see Sarah. Phineas had tried to comfort him immediately after Rat's fall, but John had not let him. He felt bad for that now, knowing that it wasn't Phineas's fault that Rat had fallen. John thought Phineas had even tried to explain something about a weaving he'd tried casting as Rat was sucked away from the ship and down the funnel of the whirlpool. John hadn't listened, though. Now, as he sat alone, he wished that he had. And he wished that he could claw himself out of the depression long enough to talk with Phineas. But he couldn't. He couldn't bring himself to eat, either. He just couldn't seem to make himself do anything. Rat was gone. His best and only truly close friend was gone. And she had caused it. To think that he had liked her. That he had begun to feel strange, uncomfortable, yet exciting feelings whenever she was around. Well, that was all over. All he felt now was a coldness that stabbed inside his gut. What was worse, he kept feeling a sharp anger towards Rat at having stolen her necklace in the first place. He couldn't help but replay the whole disastrous scene over and over again in his head. He would sit out near the wheel. Abram was not there much since they were not going anywhere. He'd looked out at the edge where they'd climbed to look out at the whirlpool. Then he'd look back at the whirlpool. So stupid. Why hadn't Rat just come up here? He could see everything from here. The sails were all down, so all that broke his line of sight were the masts and leagues of rope. He watched the swirling waters and hoped that Rat had been knocked out when he fell. He hoped he'd hit his head on the boat or one of the pylons or something. John just couldn't imagine the terror of being sucked down, down, down all the while knowing exactly what was happening and where you were going to end up. He hated himself all the more for having those thoughts, but he couldn't help it. John looked up at the big heartwood wheel that he'd miraculously used to propel the ship out of Labrie and wondered if that had really happened. He didn't know anymore. 
The runes carved into the wood looked much less sacred and magical than they had before. Now it was just another wheel on another ship, on another perilous adventure to a place that may not even exist. Everything was a fog, and his thoughts ended up back with Rat and the fact that John didn't care about anything except getting back to Labrie and his paw. He wanted to make sure his paw was okay. Now that he'd lost someone, he began questioning whether or not his paw had survived that horrible night at the harbor. Just because Phineas said that the Tidewalkers were after them, and them alone, no longer comforted John as it had once, now that he'd had his first real taste of danger. He imagined his paw floating in the harbor, injured, and the great sea eagle Aaron circling above, trying to fend off the swarm of walkers that eventually overtook him and pulled him, like rat, under the waters. Down. 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 John shivered. Overhead, he saw Aaron circling the ship. How long had the eagle been with them? Had it stayed to help his paw at all? John couldn't remember any more. Everything was becoming a blur. He wished he could just call out for his assurance, but shook off the thoughts. It was one thing to summon wind and call out to the ocean, and even for Phineas to give commands to the eagle. But John knew that not even parada magic would allow for true communication with the animal. They could instruct them and influence them using some of the old magic. But Aaron was still a beast, a great one. But beasts cannot talk with humans. Not even Goth had ever told him otherwise. John heard someone, sounded like Tice, talking to Phineas, trying to reason with him. This is madness. We've already lost the boy without so much as a peep from the grains. You don't even know if they're still here. You said yourself it'd been years and years since they'd been summoned. They're probably either down so deep into the ocean they'll never resurface, or they've just moved on. I know what I'd do. Move on from this cursed sea. Surely we can get on without them. Phineas had heard it all before, though, John thought. He knew that Phineas wouldn't budge. He was patient, and he believed. That was all it took to drive another man crazy waiting. Phineas believed that their hope was in the grains, and without them, their quest would be lost. He heard him say as much to Tice and heard curses muttered afterwards. Why didn't Phineas just do some more magic and make them stop complaining? Show them who's in charge. John thought if he were Phineas, he'd probably have tossed Tice overboard by now. Much as John had always enjoyed Tice's visits, because Tice had been fond of him and Rat, now that he was around him during the normal days of a sailor, he saw what a hard man Tice really was. Cursing at every turn, questioning both his captain and a parada. John couldn't believe Abram allowed it. The rest of the crew was so reverently respectful. And so the hours dragged by, with nothing to break the melancholy rocking of the boat between the two pylons. John didn't even want to practice his weavings. He felt as if all the joy had been sucked out of him, and despite Phineas's gentle urgings to continue to try and keep his mind busy, he refused. As the hull made contact back and forth with each of the moss-colored juts of land, 
John listened to the muffled scraping sound and could not help but imagine his friend's fingers scraping the same pylons as he flew past them and the current. When John went to sleep on the second evening, he made up his mind that on the following day he would himself appeal to Phineas to leave. Perhaps he would listen to him. Perhaps John could show him the foolishness of all this. Perhaps they could go home. John awakened from a dense sleep. He'd been dreaming a dark, meaningful dream, more serious than a nightmare, but twice as frightful. His neck was sticky with sweat, and he muttered a curse. The word felt strange on his tongue, and he said it again. He could tell that he would be up a moment. His sleep had been full, and he felt well-rested. As he shrugged the blanket off and swung his legs to the floor, a strange sensation came over him. Something was off. He didn't know what it was exactly, but he had the feeling that something was out of place. He scanned the room, but could see little even with his night eyes. Nothing and no one moved, and he could make out the slow inhalations of breath as Perry snored very lightly. He didn't remember anyone snoring, and he'd slept within a few feet of Perry practically the whole voyage. John crept to the door and opened it. Outside, the darkness was almost complete. A single torch stood vigil in the center of the deck, but John saw no one. He made his way to the other quarters where Abram and Sarah slept and opened the door. It swung easily inward, its well-oiled hinges making not a sound. John didn't know what he was doing. He stepped in and surveyed the layers of darkness. His eyes had adjusted enough to see a little, and as he focused his mind, he thought that the gray shadows of the cabin became a little more pronounced. It was like a husk had fallen from his eyes. He could see more clearly than he should have been able to in such darkness. It excited him. Sarah was in the back of the room in her own sectioned-off quarters. He allowed his anger toward her to fill his gut. What had been a hot fire two days previous had become a cold resoluteness that John did not even himself understand. He crept lightly toward the curtain that separated her bed from the rest of the room and slowly pulled back a corner of the curtain. He could dimly make out her shape on the bed, a small lump under the rustled covers, but it was not moving, not even a little. She wasn't breathing. Or was he being paranoid? It was so dark he didn't know. He bent down and continued peering at her, hoping to see the rise and fall of her breathing, but all the while thinking that something awful had happened to her. He had sensed something wrong as soon as he woke up, and this was it. How he'd sensed it, he didn't know. But he was sure of it now as he kept bending nearer the head of the bed and hoping for some sign of life and fearing that the Escondo was claiming them one by one. It wasn't fair, he thought as he reached out to touch Sarah and try to wake her. It wasn't fair. Why were they even here to begin with? They should be going west, not east, away from the problem, not toward it. His anger had dissolved completely, and that fact alone irritated him for a moment. John touched the blanket and inched it back carefully. 
now clinging to the hope that she was okay and not wanting to disturb her if that was the truth. A hand from behind him grabbed his arm, and another one went over his mouth as he yelped in fright. John recoiled like a trapped animal and fell on top of Sarah's body, scrambling in the darkness like a maniac. Only Sarah wasn't there at all, he realized after a moment. What are you doing? Sarah hissed down at him. He could make out her confused face and was at once both angry with himself and relieved that she was fine. I thought, he began, I thought you'd stopped breathing, he whispered sheepishly. It sounded pretty pathetic now that he was saying it out loud, but that feeling that something was off still lingered. Some of his anger had returned, and he thought that she saw it. What are you doing in my cabin? she hissed. Abram grunted in his sleep behind them, and John shrugged dumbly. I thought something was wrong, he said. He knew how ridiculous it sounded, but he could come up with no better explanation. He didn't even understand it. He looked into her eyes. They were glowing, sparkling in the moonlight. Moonlight? Wait a second, the moon is out, John whispered incredulously. The white shimmering light was coming through the open cabin door. Are the skies actually clearing? John stepped past her, looking out the door. Don't you feel like something is a little off, a little different? He turned to her and saw confusion written on her face. He knew he was behaving strangely. They'd not spoken to each other since Rat's fall. Sarah slowly took his hand as his mind continued to race and led him toward the door. Well, let's see, she said, her surprise turning to giddiness. As she led him out the doorway, the moonlight began to fade as though a great cloud had known they were coming and jumped in front of the moon again. There was only the torchlight. Sarah let out a sigh, and when her grip loosened and her hand fell to her side, John felt a throbbing disappointment. Then the light returned, but it was not the moon. Sarah let out a small squeak and clutched John's arm again. John had too many emotions churning through him to make room for surprise. He looked up above his cabin. On the bridge, behind the wheel and looking down at them, was Phineas. The brilliant white glow was coming from the tip of a staff in his left hand. He held two staffs, and John recognized the one in his right as Phineas's. He knew before asking that the other one was Rat's heartwood staff. The three of them stood in silence for a moment, and then John made his way forward. He took Sarah's hand this time and led her up to the bridge. His brother had not tried to approach him while he was in mourning, and he had wondered what he'd spent all his time doing these past two days. When Phineas held out the glowing staff and he examined the orb nestled in its grasp, he knew. Phineas had been completing Rat's construction. What John held was miraculous. Phineas's staff had an otherworldly quality to it, and was powerful beyond measure, as John himself had witnessed. Anyone could look at it and tell that it was to be used as an instrument for great weavings. 
But this one, it illuminated the very magic that it helped to channel as though it was alive. It was spectacular. The tip had been expertly whittled so that a hollow space with tendrils like fingers surrounding it was able to hold the orb of light that shone out from behind the thin bars of wood. John leaned in closer to examine the light. Sarah looked over his shoulder. It was not the light of fire, but neither was it the pure white moonlight that John had originally suspected. Rather, it was as if a piece of the golden sun were wrapped up within layers of slick translucence. John thought that he saw waves moving along the surface of the light, but it did not burn his eyes. He saw Sarah squinting in pain, but he felt nothing. He was simply amazed by the brilliance of it. Phineas released his hold when John's fingers closed around the staff. At once the light took on a newness. It was suddenly lessened in intensity, yet altered in its appearance. John thought that the color of the light had changed to a more fiery orange, but after a moment he realized that the waves he'd seen were now moving less rapidly over the surface of the light. It was responding to John's touch. John looked closer and saw that the source of the light was a stone whose surface appeared without flaw. It was slick-looking, as though it were even now submerged in water. It lasted another moment, and then the light died. Still amazed, John looked at Phineas, but could think of nothing to say. This is yours, John, Phineas said for him. I had crafted a reasonable oak staff for you to use before we could stop at the plates to get heartwood. But when I saw the remnants of rat and your excursions from above the fishhook, I realized I wouldn't have to wait. Rat's carpentry is quite good. I merely had to add the embezzlers. He nodded at the orb. What is it? Sarah asked. It's beautiful. It is the stone of power. Much as we piratas are able to commune with the forces of nature through our own weavings, there are nexuses of power, such as heartwood and embezzlers, that help focus and intensify those weavings. This stone is all that is left of our family. John was still in awe of what he was holding. As he listened to Phineas, his eyes wandered and he saw the arched top to an all-too-familiar item on the ground behind Phineas. It was the treasure chest from the fish hook. How did you open that? He interrupted, ducking around Phineas and examining the chest. Sure enough, it was the same intricately carved chest he and Rat had struggled unsuccessfully to open in the fish hook's secret attic. It's so pretty, said Sarah. You've seen it before? Yeah, it's been in the fish hook. Well, above the fish hook, you see, there's another room up there, but never mind all that. We tried all summer to pry it out or open, but it wouldn't budge. A noble effort, I'm sure, Phineas chuckled. But it wasn't going anywhere, so long as you remained unlearned. It was bonded to the heartwood in the attic by a weaving that, though not extremely powerful, would have been plenty to withstand the prying of most. But how did it get there? John asked. 
Who wove the spell? Sarah asked. Is there another parada on the Brie? How did you know about it? Phineas smiled. It's less complicated than you might think, John. When I sent you off from Parada Isle, the only other thing I had time to save was one of our family's embezzlers. I wrapped it in the same cloth that held your small body and hoped against hope that it would be safe. As fate would have it, Abram was wise enough to know that what he held was no ordinary stone when he discovered it. He kept it hidden and entrusted it to Rowan's protection when he gave you to him. Rowan, likewise, gave the stone to Goth to examine. Goth knew exactly what it was. He is wiser than even you know, John. And he knew some of the Parada's ways. It was he who cast the weaving on the chest, keeping it safe from the less-than-honorable pirates that also used the fishhook from time to time to store precious things. Goth's a Parada? exclaimed John and Sarah together. I didn't say that. Goth is... hard to explain. No, he's not a parada, though he knows more of them and their past than many of the paradas themselves ever did. As well, he made it a point in his life before Libri to travel far and learn much. That is truly all that I know for sure. He is a good man, though. He told only Rowan of the stone's whereabouts. Naturally, as soon as I arrived on Labrie, I sought out the embezzler. I knew that you were there and well, but I had no way of knowing about the stone. That is, in fact, one of the reasons I was so late in coming to fetch you, John. I was toiling over the weaving Goth had put on the chest for a couple of hours after Rowan told me where I could find the chest. Sarah and John were wide-eyed. For a few moments, John had left his grief and anger behind. The excitement of his life as a parada had returned. Now, though, as the last answers surfaced, he found his mind slipping back into sorrow. Phineas must have noticed. John, there may still be hope, he said quietly. John looked up, skeptical. He felt Sarah's arm brush against his own. He sensed the warmth and was both grateful and resentful at it. He felt obliged to hate her, but was finding it harder to keep up as time went on. The weaving I sent after Rat was very powerful. It may have been enough. I'm not saying it was, but it may have been. Either way, we're leaving at dawn. The grains have refused our summoning, but they cannot hide completely, not from a parada. We will journey to their home and, hopefully, reason with them from the safety of their canyon. John could hear the awe in her voice when Sarah said, Grain Island is real? Oh yes, very real and very different from the wind tales. As his focus expanded to more than the staff he held, John finally noticed what had seemed off the whole time. The whirlpool was gone. 
The sea was quiet without the churning incessantness of the perilous whirlpool. That death trap had closed up or been closed, and the escondo, he realized, was almost calm. No longer was the jasmine grating back and forth between the two natural piers. No longer did the uneven rise and fall of the ship coincide with the ever-present and troubling sounds of the whirlpool. They were free. Sarah noticed it, too. Before he could do anything, she reached down and grabbed his hand in hers. He looked at her and saw in her eyes the same mixture of emotions that he felt. He saw tears in her eyes, barely held back, and knew that he could never hate her. Perhaps it was the mention of hope. Perhaps it was his inability to needlessly condemn his friend. But John felt another emotion come over him. He thought, with a twinge of fright, that it might be love. <laughs> 